happiest session. <laughs> because after this, all my burdens will be lifted up at Calvary. <laughs> okay. We come now to the last recording teachings of Jesus in Matthew 25. And this is the story of the sheep and the goats. Now, most Bible scholars and teachers seem to agree that this story of the sheep and the goats is not strictly a parable. Rather, it's a very dynamic description of the last judgment. And although it uses a few symbolic elements like, you know, the shepherd, the sheep, and the goats. And let me also tell you that this story is rather unique in the Gospel of Matthew, and it is an appropriate ending to the chapters in which Jesus speaks about His return. And so, let's read the scripture today, today and this is uh, found in the last uh, chapter of, uh, or rather the last portions of chapter 25, Matthew. Matthew 25, 31, all the way to 46. Okay, so let me just read that in the New International Version. The PowerPoint's not up yet, right? Okay, never mind. While the PowerPoint has just been set up, let me just carry on with this, okay? Matthew chapter 25, beginning from verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Drink. And When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For what? For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we come before you again this morning. Thank you again for your grace upon us. And now even as we continue on this last teaching session on this chapter of Matthew 25, we ask, Lord, that your grace will once again fall upon us. Refresh us in every way. Keep us alert. Help us to hear well. And above everything else, Lord, we pray, God, that your name will be glorified. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just a reminder again that, you know, the, all the stories, illustrations from chapter 24, including 
chapter 25 and the first two parables that we have done in 25. All of them stress the need for us to be ready when Christ returns. And the question, of course, is how does one prepare for Christ's return? And, you know, Jesus did not leave us just hanging down there, but he went on to explain to us what it means to be ready. And so in the parable of the ten bridesmaids, we were taught that we need to be ready at all times. And that entails having a personal relationship with Christ and obeying and living out all that he commands us to do. And in the second parable yesterday, we were taught also the need for faithful work and service. You see, God expects us to use our time, our money, our talents, and all the resources for His kingdom purposes, and He will call us to accountability for all that He has entrusted to us. And whatever it is, the point is this, that we must never be like that last wicked servant who had a dead faith. In other words, a do-nothing Christianity because he buried his talent in the ground, and he did nothing about it. Now, in this final story, Jesus tells and talks about the, a day of judgment. And if you notice, you know, in Matthew 25, as I said it before, that the way Matthew tells the story, there is that cumulative effect, a progression, an intensity. Now, notice, firstly, in a parable of the wise and foolish virgin, the women were not ready and what happened? They were sh just shut out of the banquet. But then when you come to the next parable, the wicked and lazy servant, it is said that he's thrown out into the darkness. So you see there's a progression down there. And then in this final story of the sheep and the goats, those who ignore the needs of what Jesus has mentioned, the brothers, the least of that, are cursed with what? Eternal punishment. So you see that progression down there? First, it was just the door shut, and the next is just thrown into outer darkness, but the final one is what? Eternal punishment. You know, we might expect that this particular story of the sheep and the goats to be a straightforward and easy story to interpret. But those of you who have been studying this passage of Scripture and you've been looking up various commentaries, you will realize that there are many interpretations on this particular story. Now, let me just say this. The key, the key to understanding this particular story is really how we understand or interpret the phrase in verse 40 when Jesus says, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So that's the phrase. It's been repeated twice, okay? In verse 40. So it's crucial. How you understand this phrase will determine how you understand the story here. Now, over the years, there have been many, many interpretation, okay, given by various Bible scholars. But just for summary sake, you know, I'll just generally present you four views. Four views of interpreting of what the least of these brothers of mine mean, okay? Now, the first view about this phrase, what it means is that it refers to anyone who is hungry or has other physical needs. Now, this has been the majority view in church history uh, unfortunately, it's also led to many sentimental and sometimes fanciful stories. For example, Gregory the Great, one of the great uh, church fathers, tells of a monk by the name of Martyrius, who once came upon a deformed man just lying and exhausted outside on, on the roadside. And so what happened? He carried this exhausted and deformed man to the monastery. 
And when the abbot saw him at a distance, you know, he called to the other monks, come, 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 open the gates. Our brother, Matthias, is coming. He's carrying our Lord Jesus. You see, the way they understood this, literally in a sense, okay, seeing every person in need as Jesus. Another story, of course, is uh, a legend probably talks about Francis of Assisi. Many of you will know this. Francis of Assisi was a wealthy, callous man before his conversion. But one day, while he was riding and saw a loathsome leper, you know what's a leper, right? Leprosy is something that you know, causes you to be in, uh, losing all your sense of pain. And uh, slow by slow, you know, all these can, you can lose your limbs, your thumbs, your hands, so on and so forth. And uh, it is a contagious disease. But it was said that something moved Francis, and Francis so greatly that he dismounted and he fling his arms and wrap himself around this leper. All right? You know, in those days, there's no cure for this. And so everybody just, you know, running away because it's contagious. But Francis just, you know, put his arms there and just hugged this leper. And when he did that, it was said that the leper changed and the face of Jesus appeared. So you see all these uh, stories, you know, that comes up from this kind of interpretation. And so these stories are characteristic of the medieval piety as a result of understanding that the least of the brothers of mine here means anyone, anyone who's hungry or who are, who are in need. And one of our modern Bible teachers who hold to this view, okay, is William Barclay. Those of you like William Barclay? Well, William Barclay concluded from these verses and he says, God will judge us in accordance with our reaction to human need. So that's the first view. Now the second view of what the least of the brothers of mine might mean has been interpreted, interpreted as meaning the Jewish people. And this is what we call in theological jargon the dispensational view, which understands judgment to be one of the several judgments, and with this judgment being placed at the close of the great tribulation after Christians have been removed from the world by rapture. All right, so these are people who believe in rapture. It is usually described as a judgment of literal nations on the grounds of their treatments on the Jews. And one good example is a, a, a pastor and Bible teacher, Harry Ironside. He wrote this, My brethren are those of Israel who are related to Christ, both according to the flesh and the spirit, and will be his authoritative witnesses in the coming time of tribulation when the present church age is ended. And this view is possible if the entire dispensational understanding of prophecy is valid. So that's the second understanding. The third view of what the least of the brothers of mine mean could refer to it is the apostles and all the other Christian missionaries. Now what this view purports is that one treats and react, how one treats and reacts to missionaries, Apostles or those serving in full-time ministry will determine one's fate. Well, this view is slightly closer to the text than the other two views because it has support, for example, from Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, when Jesus said to his disciples, addressing the apostles, he says this. Remember, he was sending them out, you know, and then telling them this. He says, he who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives the one who sent me. And if it, anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. So what, which of these views are correct? Well, 
some of these views are better than others, as I've indicated. But the trouble with all of them is this. And that is, Jesus does not use the word brothers in a ways, you know, like what is understood in the rest of the other points of Scripture. But the word brothers is quite unique in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew's usage, brothers always means disciples or all who follow Christ. In other words, all Christians. The word brothers, whenever it's used in the Gospel of Matthew, almost always is referred to as fellow Christians. And so, those who are the least are referred mainly to Christ's followers. I think this makes sense because also if you look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, because the Apostle Paul says in no uncertain terms, he says this. In Galatians 6.10, Paul says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so with all these, I believe that the fourth view and interpretation is the right one. In other words, the fourth view is this. The least of these brothers of mine refers to Christians, all, or all Christian, Christian disciples, followers of Christ. That means it covers basically as long as you're a believer of Jesus Christ, it covers that category. And of all these four views, okay, what happened is, is this view is right now supported by the majority of Bible scholars and teachers. Now, this does not mean that God is not concerned about the poor and the oppressed in general. Because elsewhere in the Bible itself, you, the Bible does talk about us, you know, that we need to care for people who are in need, for the oppressed, for the general poor and oppressed, okay? But in this particular Gospel of Matthew, the caring for the general poor, the least brother of mine, all right, is always referred to as Christian, fellow Christian. And what Jesus means here is that the fate of all Christians depends on how we relate to one another. And that's why the Bible teacher, John Brodus, and an American pastor and Bible teacher puts it like this. Our Lord is not expressly speaking of benevolence to the poor and suffering in general, but of kindness to His poor and suffering brethren for His sake. And another popular Bible teacher, D.A. Carson he says this similarly, the true disciples will pass an examination not because they're trying to pass an examination, but because they will love his brothers and sisters and therefore Christ. Goats will fail because, of course, they will not particularly care for Jesus' brothers and sisters and thus will be rejecting the Messiah himself just as Saul in persecuting Christians was actually persecuting Jesus. And so you see, church, this is the majority view of understanding the least of these brothers of mine. And that is, it means basically to love all who believe in Jesus. And this should not come as a surprise for us. The reason is because if you read the Gospels, the rest of the Gospels, as well the letters, some of the letters of the, uh, the apostles, particularly the one from John. You know, you remember John John gives us, in his first letter, he tells us how we can know that we are Christians. Because if you remember in John's first letter, he outlines three tests. Three tests how we know that we are indeed Christian. The first thing is how you test whether you are Christian is whether you believe that Jesus has come in human flesh. 
In 1 John chapter 2, 20 to 23, chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, and chapter 4, uh, 4 again, 15 and 5, verse 1. And the second thing, how you can know that you are a disciple of Christ is whether you obey Christ's command. Okay? The scripture verses are all written for you there. And finally, the third test of whether, how you know you are actually a Christian is whether you love other Christians. Now, this last test is the one in which our, the story of the separation of the sheep and the goats depends. For the issue at heart is this, is whether we love and care for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because to the extent that we do that, it will demonstrate how much we love Jesus. And this is what is going to determine our destiny. You know, this is an important thing because, you know, you heard of the, the, the saying that says, charity begins at home. And it is true. Because if we cannot start loving those who are in our family, how are we going to start loving those who are outside? And the truth of the matter of this also is this. I'm sure, you know, most of you, you know, you love your family members. Okay, if there's anything, you love your own family members. But at the same time, the irony is this, the truth in life is this. Sometimes it's so difficult to love those in your family, isn't it? You know, my years as a pastor here, I've come across many families. And it's quite a rarity to find siblings very close to one another. Have you realized that? I'm sure even as I speak of this, I know there are some of you here who are not close even to your siblings. But the fact is that you're still family. And you're supposed to want to love one another. But that's the difficulty, isn't it? And so here it is, here. You know, and that's, I think it makes sense here. Because if you were to study church history also, you would know that some of the ugliest fights and persecutions happens amongst Christians. Christians, you know, hating one another. Christians persecuting one another. You know, all you need to look is no further. You look at Paul's letter. You think the early church was perfect. You know, every time we hear this, this saying, you know, that you know, um, you know, Christians want to go back and harp upon the early church. Oh, how they love one another. My friend, read your Bible carefully. All you need is go and read the, the letters of Paul. For example, if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, this is a church that's mired in conflicts. They were fighting with one another. And Paul says this, you know, in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, For since there is jealousy and quarreling among, among you, are you not worthy? See, the early church fight. And in another passage in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 7, Paul says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Can you imagine Christians suing one another in church? Now we thank God that in Amokyo history, I don't think you have ever experienced this. Yeah? But I'm telling you, it's happening. It happens in some other church. Okay, Wesley Methodist Church many, many years ago. Okay, you know, when I was a young man serving as, you know, like your lay person, I was the uh, uh, president of the Methodist Adult Fellowship. And so by virtue of that, you know, I was one of the members of LCC. You know, I, as a young man, I, I don't like to attend LCC meetings. And so, LCC members, you can understand why. You know, when I said to all of you, it's, it's very hard to get young people to come in. You know, because... We don't like all this administrative stuff. You know, we just want to do ministry. And so that was, well, that was it. And the one time that I attended the LCC meeting, it was a horrifying experience for me. 
Yeah, <laughs> truly. I can remember because at that point in time, there was this church fights, you know, about, you know, all this anonymous letter, all this stuff, you know. And right in the middle of the meeting, you know, I had, you know, one of the leaders standing up against another leader said, I'll sue you. I'm telling you, I saw that. I said, wow, I didn't want that. And that was the last time I attended LCC meeting. <laughs> Until I became a pastor. <laughs> well, let me say this. It's not so bad. But, you know, so Amokyo is good. <laughs> and also, okay, Wesley right now is good too. <laughs> because I'm there. <laughs> but this is the reality of life. But just because we have all these fights does not mean that we should run away from it. And I also want to say that, you know, most of us, you know, we would expect that as Christians, the older we get, the longer we walk with the Lord, we should be growing to be more loving, more caring, more compassionate, more merciful. But you know, the tragedy is this, not every Christian is like that. And I'm sure you can agree with me. Some of the nastiest people that I meet are Christians. And not just Christians, you know, they're long-time serving Christians. They bring their Bible, you know, to church or this other stuff, you know, and they can quote you scriptures after scriptures. But the truth is, when you look at them and you observe their lives and how they treat others, they're simply mean and nasty. And somehow for these Christians, you know, their heart doesn't get bigger and softer as they get older and as they get, you know, they're supposed to mature in their faith, but somehow their heart doesn't get any bigger. Instead, it gets smaller, it gets harder. And the surprising thing is that some of these Christians, again, like I say, you know, have been in church for many, many years and even serve faithfully in the various ministries in the church. And I'm sure you also know people, you know, oh, that person in, in, in the ministry, I worship, I don't know, I don't, no, 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 I don't want to be there. You know, as long as he's here or she's here, I'm not going to be there. Yeah, okay, I see a lot of nods, huh? but um, <laughs> huh? uh, even for pastor, that pastor, that pastor preaching again, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> well, anyway, let's come back to serious stuff, okay? <laughs> God is concerned whether we love one another. And that's why you remember once Jesus was asked by the religious leaders, what is the most important commandment one day? He made no hesitation and he answered in Mark chapter 12, verses 30, 31. He said, firstly, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And he didn't stop there. And he said, the second greatest commandment is what? It's love one another as I have loved you. Love your neighbors as yourself. And that's why the Apostle John can say and echo the same thing. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 to 21, he says what? Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother and sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sisters, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. And so you see, so it's so important for us that God cares how we love because the way that we love one another is the way that we can authenticate how we love God. 
See, the truth is none of us see, have ever seen God face to face. Okay, and it's always easy to love, you know, someone in a, in, in a sense, okay, in a sense quotation, you know, that you don't see quite often. Or don't live quite physically with one another. And that is why Jesus at this command here, he says, the test is this, the way you live with one another. And if you can do that, that proves that you can love God. The other reason why God cares about why we need to love one another is this. It's because if we don't love one another, we bring great disrepute to the cause of Christ. You know, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says what? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And what he says after that? So that the world may know that you are my disciples. You see, this is so important for us. And many of you have known of friends and loved ones that you have tried to reach out. And you know, the immediate answer is no, no, no. You know, I see you Christians are a lot of hypocrites. I'm not going to believe. And that's the truth. You see, we behave differently. Why? When we start treating each other nastily. And Christians in the marketplace, you know, treating uh, another Christian, you know, with the same kind of nastiness. And when these non-believers, you know, see this thing happening, you think they will believe us when we say God is love. You must love Him. And He starts looking at your life, my goodness. This is what love is all about. I don't want to have anything to do with it. That's the truth, isn't it? So the test is this here, that we need to love one another because this is the test. And one of the things, whatever you say about the early church itself, you know, they were great in one sense. You know, they faced tremendous persecution. But one of the things is this, that the pagans saw clearly that they loved the Lord Jesus. How? By the way they loved one another. By the way they protected one another. And as a result of that testimony itself, many also came to know Jesus. And so that's so important. You see, the evidence of a credible Christian profession is not how much we love God through many, many great works we do for Jesus or how many churches that we have built or how many sermons that we have preached or how many millions of dollars, you know, millions of dollars that we have given to Christ's cause. Now, all these are important, but really, push come to sharp. The proofs of our conversion and confessions are not in all these great things that we do. Rather, they are found in the little things that we do to one another, like sharing food with a brother in need. Do you know that there are Christian brothers and sisters in Christ in need? Do you know who they are? Giving water to a sister in Christ who's thirsty, welcoming a stranger. You know, all over the world as you go from time to time, you meet Christians who do not know. They are strangers in that sense. But how do you welcome them? Particularly, you know, when in our Sunday service, you know, every week we may have visitors who come and visit us. Christians, perhaps, you know, lost in the wilderness and decide to come back to church. How do you welcome them? Do you see them? And then you look at them and you do, boots up. You know, how we welcome is important. Jesus says to us, visiting those in prison. Christians also go prison. I mean, there are no saints. All of us are saints in the making. We are all sinners. We fall. And so some of them, some of us, may land up in, in prison. So do we visit our Christian and brothers and sisters in Christ who are in prison? And so these are the things. And it's because of these little things that the righteous do not even remember. 
having done them, they asked, you know, when, Lord, did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes? When did we see you sick in the hospital, you know, and go and visit you? And it's precisely because of these little things that they did almost like it's natural for them. They didn't even think about it that God commanded them. On the other hand, the other group, they asked the same thing itself. But they didn't do anything. And that's why the unrighteous was judged. Because they didn't do all these things to their fellow brothers and sisters. They might have done it if it was as somebody as important as Jesus. And that's why they say, you know, Lord, if we had seen you, you know, in prison, we would have visited you. If we had seen you sick and thirsty, you know, we would have come and visit you, feed you, you know, or nursed you. You know, friends, when you make such a statement like that, you only serve important people, important Christians. You only delude yourself by such comments because even if you have helped an important person like Jesus, your reason for helping will not be truly selfless in any way. In other words, you're doing it just because you can get a benefit in return. And that is why it's so important for us when we treat one another you know, don't just because you see a Christian here, wow, this fellow, you know, wow, MP, you know, I must, I must, must get my connection. <laughs> Christian Samoa, very good, Christian. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I volunteer the constituency, you know, I go and serve, you know, with him in the residence committee or these things. Well, I do that. But why? So that, you know, one day, you know, you can call for favors. <laughs> uh, right, our MP, where is he? <laughs> he knows that. I mean, look, we are all human, we know, okay? And the world is doing all these things, but that doesn't mean that Christians don't do all these things, right? They do. At the right time, they always come. This is a time of the year where they got kept very close to the pastor. A hey, pastor, you know, phase 2B. I need you to sign for my <laughs> ACS, <laughs> Methodist school, okay? And if you are nobody, you know, they tend to shun you away. Now look, it's not how you treat those who are somebody in the kingdom of God. It's how you treat those who are nobody in the kingdom of God. That is the most crucial thing. And when you do these things right, then you'll be richly rewarded. You know? And so, when judgments come, the unrighteous were astonished. They are like the foolish virgins who cannot understand why the groom will not open the door for them or the servant who cannot perceive why the Lord is not satisfied with his zero-sum growth. RVG Tasker a professor of New Testament once said this. He says this. As in previous parables of the ten bridesmaids and now the parables of the talents, so in this picture of the great judgment, it is not so much positive wrongdoing that evokes the severest censure, but it is the utter failure to do good. And in this case, the goats are those who fail to care and love for their fellow Christian brothers and sisters. So at this point, let me ask you some serious question. If today you're called to account for how you treat your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, how do you think, how do you, think you, you, you stand? Where are you at in this assessment? Is there anyone a Christian brother and sisters in Christ that you're holding a grudge against. Somebody that you cannot stand. You know, the point is this. We're not asked to like 
everyone. I mean, there's a difference between liking and loving. Like means you're depending on your emotions, your chemistry, whatever it is. But love, love is something that we are commanded to do. And if you want to know exactly what love is all about, go and read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul outlines for you, this is love. What love is patient is kind. You may not like someone. That's okay. But you need to love the person. In other words, you need to treat the person with respect, with gentleness, with all the compassion that you have, even if you don't like that person. That's not being a hypocrite, by the way. That's because God commands you to do this. So in the ministry, as we work together, we will have our different points of view. But that does not mean that we should try to persecute one another. We still need to love one another. And for those of you in ministry, you need to know one thing here also is this. That, you know, I find that a lot of time when we do ministry, there are very few things that's really a matter of life and death. Every decision that you make have a different viewpoint. Very few decisions are a matter of life and death. Mostly it's a matter of different perspective, different way of doing things. And if we understand that, then we should rightly embrace, you know. I mean, even though you may have your ideas, but your ideas differ with others, but it's okay. It's all right. We can agree to disagree, and we can continue to serve the ministry, but we don't come with the attitude when you cannot agree with someone, I don't want to serve with this person, I don't want to be with that. You know, that is a test too. The test here is this, it's not when everybody agrees with you. That's easy. It's just like loving, you know. I mean, if love is so easy, we love one another, then why in the world... You know, the apostle write all these letters that, you know, you must learn to love one another. You know, because the truth is a matter is that love is something that we need to learn, relearn, unlearn, and learn and learn again. Our human tendency because of our fallen nature is that naturally we will not gravitate towards love. Particularly loving those who are unlovely. So we need to understand this. So let me ask you, is there anyone in your life at this point, that you're harboring any kind of bitterness, then let me tell you this. Let me encourage you. You need, you need to confess your sin and learn to let go. And you need to learn to forgive. And if necessary, you may even need to stretch out a hand and to ask to be reconciled. Failure to do so I want to hear these words of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, it says here, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, remember in the context of Matthew, whenever brothers, sisters are being mentioned, it's always referring to the family of God. Okay? And he continues, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that is fool, is answerable to the Lord. For anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Strong language. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, this is what Jesus says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. 
Settle metals quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And so it's important for us to remember that we need to love one another. The final thing that I want to say about loving all Christians is this, that as Christians, we must love God's church. You know, it's an oxymoron to say that you are Christians and you don't want or you don't love God's church and want to have nothing to do with God's church. You know, over the years, you know, I've, I've met Christians who have not attended church because they say, look, they, they believe in a universal church. You know, I don't, don't believe in any local church at all, you know, or any kind of attachment to a local congregation because they think this is, you know, man-made. You know, Scripture reminds us otherwise. If you remember the Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, you know, Paul was writing about this, about husband loving their wives. And in a very, you know, interesting way, he puts this comparison. He says, husband, love your wives just as what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, this is interesting. One minute, Paul was talking about the relationship between husband and wife. The next minute, he's comparing that with Christ's relationship with the church. And if Christ loves his church so much, if you are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in Christ, should we love the church any less? And you know church is what? We are the church. For wherever two or three are gathered in his name, Christ says he is in the midst of us. So a church basically means, you know, a community of believers coming together. Why do we need to love the church? Because Christ says it very clearly. We are his body right now here on earth. You know, when Jesus ascended 2,000 years ago, he's gone now. I mean, he's in heaven, but he's everywhere. But he's spirit, all right? And so all of us cannot see him. The world cannot see him. But who can the world see? Christians. But more importantly, visibly what? The church. You know, one of the questions that, you know, I, I have people from time to time, you know, can, can I be a Christian? And, you know, we don't need to have, you know, coming to Sunday worship or this house. We don't need to do that. Let me ask you this question. Imagine if we have no church at all. At all. In this country. No church at all. How would the believers come to know Jesus? And if they come to know Jesus, maybe, you know, through personal friends or this thing, how are they going to be disciples? Have you ever thought of that? Let me suggest to you, of course, there are many, many ways. I mean, people can still come to know Jesus without the church. But you know the problem with human tendency? The human tendency is this. If it's everybody's responsibility, it's no one's responsibility. Theobar? Right? So all Christians must disciple. All Christians must evangelize. Okay, but in the end, not me, uh, my brother. <laughs> that's the problem. When everybody is responsible, nobody is responsible. And that's the reason why we need a church because one of the things that the church does is that the church intentionally gets people together and make sure that we continue the mission of Christ. And so whenever we do that, we come together every Sunday. It's a visible presence when we come together. When we worship the Lord, 
what are we worshiping? Not only for God to be honored, but at the same time as our worship, you know what Scripture tells us? When we worship God, God will also draw near to us. In that way, it's of God inhabits in our praises. And in that way, also people can see who this God we are worshiping as we come together in the church, in community. And the church also functions to purposely hold people accountable. Can make sure that whenever you have evangelism be done, you know, converts being taken up, we follow up with them. But if it's left to every one of you, well, some of you will be on the baller. All right? But the truth of the matter is this, that most of us, because of our human fallenness, we may not be conscientious in following those up. And that's the reason why we need the visible church. The visible church is a representation of Christ's body here, a witness to the world. If there is no church then it will be completely disastrous. How is the world going to know that Jesus is our Lord? And how the world is going to know only through you? And so it's important for us to love Christ's church. So let me just encourage you, those of you who have not been you know, a member of Amokyo Church and you've been here for many, many, many years, it's time for you to think seriously. If Christ has given himself so much for this church, are you to do anything less and the first step is also this. For those of you who have never been baptized, all right, baptism, of course, is one of the definitive signs to authenticate that we are indeed Christian because through baptism, we make our final commitment. Say, Lord, I so bow to you. From now onwards, I'm yours. Okay? But of course, we don't have the Catholic understanding that, you know, baptism, you need baptism to be safe. All right? We don't have that Catholic understanding because if you look at the thief on the cross, you remember when he was hanging on the cross? Was he baptized? Crucified? Oh, I believe in Jesus. Come down, baptized first, then go back again to the cross. <laughs> he wasn't baptized, but Jesus said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. But as long as you're healthy and there's nothing to stop you from being baptized, then you should. This is one of the signs that you can tell God definitely that he, you love him. And not only be baptized, but belong to a church where you can serve, where you can grow. And more importantly in this community here is this. That's how you learn to love one another, right? It is when you rub one another, when you fight with one another, and that's where you learn to practice patience, kindness, compassion. And that's how you grow. You see, without the community of believers, it's hard to grow as a Christian. Now, before I end this final teaching, I must talk a little bit about hell. How bad it is. How bad is hell? You know, in our modern age now here, we have lost sight of hell. And if hell was ever mentioned, it is almost treated very lightly. Almost like a joke, right? You've heard this before. I'm sure many of you have heard this, you know, particular story. You know, talk about a story of a man, a rich man. One day he died, you know, and then he went to heaven. And then he went to this, uh, just before he entered heaven, he met Peter at St. Peter's Gate. And so Peter looked at his records, you know, and he's like, wow, this fellow quite impressive, huh? Rich, you know, he'd been given a lot of money, helping the poor, you know, the cause of Christ. So and so. Okay, look, okay, we have, uh, he says, like, um, since you are so good, but, but at the same time, we know also that you are you're not so good with your business like, because you know you do a lot of bribery, corruption. Or also, we give you a choice. You can choose either heaven or hell. Okay? And so this man look at him. Uh, okay, um, can I have a look what's like heaven and hell? Okay, Peter said, no problem. Okay, come, 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 come. So he brought him to the, you know, this, this heavenly elevator. He went to hell. Hey, heaven, heaven first. <laughs> heaven first. And so he opened the door 
and he saw everybody. Firstly, he saw Pastor Liam Kai uh, <laughs> praying, worshipping the Lord. And then he saw Kim Sia <laughs> deep in meditation. And then he saw Pastor Anthony floating on the clouds. <laughs> is, is this all to it, this, this heaven? Yep, that's all to it. Can I see heaven? Uh, hell? Okay, fine. Take the lift, zoom, go down to hell. And so one go down to hell now. Straight open the door. Wow, dancing here and there. Wow, party all over. You know, wow. Very happening. You know, people drinking. You see, wow. It's just, so after the door is closed. Okay, so what's your decision? St. Peter asked. No brainer, my friend. No brainer. Hell, man. Hell. <laughs> and so, okay, are you sure? Final de- decision? Confirm? Confirm, confirm, huh? Okay, all right, fine. Okay, zoom, go down to hell. And immediately when he opened the door, two devils bring it in. Hey, wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm supposed, this is not the place. So all the fire down there, you know, all the you know, people suffering. Out there. Hey, this is not the place. Wrong place, wrong place. No, this is hell. Then why just now I saw that hell? What's the difference? Oh, that's just publicity. You know, that's the truth. Nowadays, when people talk of hell, they don't talk about it seriously. Of course, all those things I've given you is not correct. Huh? I mean, heaven and you go to heaven, there's no more choice already and no second chance, okay? Please, no more already, okay? Here on earth is where it determine your destiny, okay? Once you go up, once you die, no more second chance, okay? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. But seriously, that's how most people will treat hell. You know, make it like a joke. And sometimes I hear people saying that they cannot believe in the Old Testament God who is full of wrath and judgment and they prefer the God of the gentle Jesus. But often, most people forget. Do you know who gives us the most information about hell? The person that gives us the most information about hell and for us to form our understanding and doctrine of hell is none other than our Lord Jesus. You go and check and read up your Bible. Jesus was the person that gives us and speaks to us most clearly about hell. And here in Matthew 25, it's quite clear. In a parable of talent, you know, the master cries out, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 30. And the separation of sheep and the goats, the king tells the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angel. Verse 41. And then the chapter ends with Jesus' frightening summation in verse 46. He says what? Then they will go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. Now we may not like all these statements. And let me say to you, all these statements and language are vocabularies of hell. And they were spoken by none other than our Lord Jesus, the very Son of God. Jesus Himself is the prime, if not sole source of our knowledge about hell. And without His teaching, it is almost impossible for us to furnish a description, much less you know, formulate a doctrine on hell. And, this, and because of this, we would do well to take His warnings seriously. Hell is to be feared. Now what do we know about hell? Well, there are four things that Jesus tells us about hell. Now, because of time, I won't go through everything. But basically, just to sum up for us, hell is basically separation from God. 
It's not just separation from fellow believers, your loved ones or this type of thing. It's about this separation for God, from God. And that's the worst thing that anyone can go through in life. And in number two, hell is bad association. Remember, hell was not created for human beings. In verse 41, Jesus said very clearly, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But here again, there's this parable. Jesus says in no uncertain terms that even though hell is created for the devil and his angels, he says that ungodly people will be thrown inside there as well. And so for all eternity, your companions will be the devils if you end up down there. And you know, the devil will be most happy to have you. Of course, they'll all be suffering. You know, they're not there. So if you see pictures of devil dragging you into down there, look, come on, that's, that's not true also. The devil will suffer down there also at the same time. Okay? And they are happy in a sense because why, that's what they're trying to do. You see, one of the jobs is this. Satan says, look, if I can't have it, make sure that all of you can have it. If I'm going down there, I'm going to drag as many people as possible to be there with me. And that is what is happening. When they see you down there, they'll be very happy and they'll say, oh, hallelujah. Uh, they, they, probably they won't say. <laughs> I mean, you, you get what I'm trying to say. You know, because they've accomplished the objective. They bring as many people as possible along with them to suffer. Because say, if they can't have it, then they will not allow you to have it as well. And the third thing here is this hell is a place of suffering. You know, all those words that have been described down there may be symbolic, but if you look down there, it's, you know, there is that literal understanding. You know, what kind of suffering we cannot probably, probably imagine what it is. You know, it, it's, it could be mental, internal, psychological, but it's truly something that produces what the Bible tells us in verse 30. Jesus says what? There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a description of suffering. And finally, hell is a place of darkness. You know, the idea of eternal suffering is also very disturbing for most of us. But the truth is this. I mean, there are people who can't believe that a God of love would allow eternal punishment. But let me just say this to you. In verse 46, in the same breath that Jesus described hell, as eternal punishment. He also described heaven as eternal bliss. The two words are the same, eternal. So if you agree that if we're in heaven in eternity, and it's forever and ever, and the same word is used for hell, then why can't we believe that hell as a place of eternal suffering? Bishop John Ryle, the Anglican Bishop of Liverpool in the past, was no alarmist, but he wrote, Who shall describe the misery of eternal punishment? It is something utterly indescribable and inconceivable. The eternal pain of the body, the eternal stink of an accusing conscience, the eternal society of none but the wicked, the devil and his angels, the eternal remembrance of opportunities neglected and Christ despised, the eternal prospect of a weary, hopeless future. All these... Is misery indeed. It is enough to make our ears tingle and our blood run cold. Now, why does Jesus say all these terrible things? Is he trying to frighten us? No. What good would that do? Listen, people are not frightened to heaven. 
Jesus is warning us, particularly for those of us who suppose we are right with God when we are not right and when we are not ready for Jesus when He comes. You see, that's the whole purpose of Jesus. When He tells this parable, it's not to frighten us, but He really wants us to know the truth and want us to be ready. He doesn't want any one of us to end up in that destiny, that hell. This is not Jesus' intent. And so Jesus wants us to make sure that we live our life for His glory. You know, the Apostle Peter tells us this and how it should be done. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1.10, Make your calling and election sure. And how does we, do we do that? He continues in verse 5 and 7. He says that we must add goodness to faith, knowledge to goodness, self-control to knowledge, perseverance to self-control, godliness to perseverance, brotherly kindness to godliness, and love to brotherly kindness. In other words, we need to develop Christ-like character. And he says this, if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So to summarize what we have learned in all these sessions, in the fourth session in Matthew 24, 25, the basic thrust is basically this, that our Christian hope must never be relegated or understood about the future life only or to the distant future. That, you know, we always think of heaven in terms of what is to come, you know, but has nothing to do with what we are doing presently. That is a lie. We must never subscribe to such a lie. Okay? What we do here on this earth is important. And Matthew 24, 25 teaches us that we must not have a faith that seems to have little or nothing to do with the present world. We must avoid a religion that tends to focus or on just gaining an access to heaven. Rather, Scripture tells us in no uncertain terms that God cares about what we do and how we live on this earth. And whatever else we do, we must not have a dead faith or do-nothing Christianity. And so all these parables, remember, are addressed to disciples. And the warnings are basically to this, to complacent believers. You see, the Lord wants servants who are both Faithful and fruitful. The quality of our service is also important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, it says, If a man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will reveal with fire, and the fire will test the quality of the man's work. So let me conclude right now, okay? I want to tell you the story of the late Dr. Teo King Siang. Those of you in the medical profession, you might know him, but he's passed on a few years ago. Who is this doctor? Oh, Dr. Teo, next slide, please. Dr. Teo lived his life in pursuit of success and money, believing that these are all that mattered. And by the time he was 40 years old, it was said that he was already a millionaire. He had everything that he wanted in life. But then, it happened. Without much warning, he was just diagnosed with an inoperable cancer and was compelled to start reflecting on the meaning and the purpose of living and dying. So let me quote you an abridged version of his testimony. And this is what he says. <clears throat> I'm a typical byproduct of today's society. From young, 
I was told by the media and the people around me that happiness is about success. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I was baptized 20 years ago. But it was because it was fashionable to be a Christian then. All my friends were becoming Christians then. It was fashionable. I wanted to be baptized so that I, when I fill in a form, I could put there, Christian. Feels good. In truth, I never had a Bible. I don't know what the Bible is all about. I went to church for a while, but after some time, I got tired. I say it's time to go to NUS. Stop going to church. I had a lot more things to pursue in NUS. Girls, studies, sports. After all, I'd achieve all these things without God today. So, who needs God? I myself can achieve anything I want. Well, I was wrong. In March 2011, I was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, stage 4B. It spread to the brain, half the spine, whole of my lungs were filled with tumor, liver, and adrenals. I went into severe depression. The irony is that all these things that I have, the success, the trophies, my cars, my houses and all, I thought that brought me happiness. But having all these thoughts of my possessions, they brought me no joy. I can't even hug my Ferrari to sleep. I was being trained as a doctor to be compassionate, to be able to empathize, but I couldn't. Patience was just a source of income. And I tried to squeeze every single cent out of these patients. But you know, when I faced death, death, when I had to, I stripped myself of all stuff totally, and I focused only on what is essential. And the irony is that a lot of times, only when we learn how to die, then we learn how to live. The fact that this has happened to me gave me a chance to come back to God. I've learned a few things. One, trust in the Lord with, with all your heart. And this is so important to me. And second, to love and serve others, not just ourselves. Unquote. You know, Dr. Teo learned rather too late the meaning of living well for God's glory. But he did attempt to die well by becoming a voice in the wilderness, telling those who would listen to him not to live as he had lived. So my friends, if we really believe what Jesus says, we will take seriously our life here on earth. And I pray that we will avoid a dead faith, a do-nothing Christianity. Importantly, that our belief in our Lord Jesus will be evident in our behavior. Finally, at the end of it all, our life here on earth can be summarized with these words from Don Moen's song. And this is what he says. When it's all been said and done, there is just one thing that matters. Did I do my best to live for truth? Did I live my life for you? When it's all been said and done, all my treasures will mean nothing. Only what I've done for love's reward will stand the test of time. And so I want to just close this time and be play this song by Don Moen to allow us some time to reflect. And after this, I will close.
Let's pray. You know, David says in Psalms 39, verse 4, 7, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You've made my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. You know, David had a good appraisal of what life is all about. And I think for many of us, and for many people, in fact, being oblivious to eternity always leaves us as experts in the trivial and novices in a significant thing. And because of that, what happens is that we tend to major on the minor instead of major on the major. But the truth of the matter here is this, if you have heard David's word, words in a breath all of us will be gone one day some sooner some later but the fact is one day our life here on this earth will end and then what and if you have not prepared your life on this earth then going on to eternity will be a scary thing. And remember, you can't undo anything once you step over beyond this life. You have only one chance to make it right. And my prayer is this, that you will make it right. And so today, I'm giving you an invitation. I don't know where you are at in your spiritual life. But one thing I'm sure that God has convicted me to call you to, to, to do, and that is don't play church anymore. Don't be a nominal Christian. Don't have a do-nothing Christianity. Yes, God is very gracious. He has saved you. This grace is free, unmerited. You are already there. You have it. Just because you have it doesn't mean you will always have it. Because if you go back again and read the Bible, it's clear that God has called us to be in His family. Not just to wait until heaven comes, but in the meantime, between now and then, there is work for us to do. Firstly, work in our lives. That we continue to grow more and more like Jesus. One of the ways we can do that is to spend time with God. Continue on reading His Word. Letting His Word take root in our life. Forming us. But it doesn't stop there. 
You see, when God gives us His Word, it is meant to be lived out, not to just be, re, you know, just to remember or to memorize. It's no point. You can memorize thousands of Scripture, but you are not living out a single one of them. You will never be more like Christ. It is in living out the Word of God, walking close with Him, that you are transformed to be more and more like Christ. And the next thing is this. God has given you gifts. And so there's work for you. The gifts that He's given to you, some of it, in fact, most of it, could be used in your vocation where you can feed your family, make out a living. That's fine. But God says, don't stop there. Don't just live for yourself and your family alone. That gift is given to you to bless the community. That gift is given to you to draw others. And so how are you using those resources to draw others unto Christ? You have to answer that. And so today I'm giving you an opportunity. If this is what you want to do, say, Lord, I heard your word loud and clear today. From today onwards, I'm not going to play church. I don't know how long I'm going to be, but I want to use and make use of every moment you've given me to live for your glory in my relationship with you, in my relationship with others, and all the gifts, talents you've bestowed to me. I want to use all these things for your glory. If that is your heart cry, I want you to stand where you are. You just make a stand. Not so much for me to see, but as a personal statement of faith to tell God that you mean business with Him. All eyes closed. You don't have to look at your neighbor. Okay? And I promise you, I'm not going to embarrass you. Okay? I'm not going to coerce you to come right to the front here later on. I'm not going to do that. All I just need for you is that for you to make an indication And then I want to pray for you. Because I know in the days to come, you will face all kinds of temptation. And that is the temptation to quit. The temptation to go back to business as usual. To go back to be again a nominal Christian. To be complacent. I know you will face these temptations. And that's the reason why I want to pray for you. To make sure that God, in those moments when you fall, God's Spirit will be with you to lift you up. And so wherever you are right now, just stand. All eyes closed. You do your business with God as you stand and I'll pray for you in a while. while. We're just going to spend a few moments now and allow the Spirit of God to work with you. Remember, you're under no pressure. And the only reason why you're standing here, standing up, is that you're saying to Lord, Lord, I want to dedicate my life to you from now onwards. I'm not, I'm going to be serious with you henceforth. I want to employ all that I have to live my life as an offering for you.
answered. That is your commitment. You stand where you are. And in a few moments, I'm going to pray for you. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you once again for your great grace and love for us. And we know, Father, it's never your will to see anyone perish. It's never your will to see anyone go to hell. Because when you created us, You've created us to be with you. Hell was a place you created for the devil and the fallen angels. It was never meant for us. But yet we know also that when you created us, you've given us the freedom of choice. And that choice entails also us choosing. Because you're a God of love, Love is not love if it is compelled. Love is only love if it is freely given and freely received. And so you have given us human beings a choice to either choose to love you or to reject you. And from your word, we know pretty well too that there is no middle ground. It's either we are for you or we are against you. But if we're standing in the middle path, we're just lukewarm Christians. And we know too that we will stand the risk of being thrown into a fiery furnace of hell. So I thank you, Lord, that you have seen fit to warn us. And thank you for these loved ones who are standing here today. Lord, I commend them to you. Thank you for the resolve for the choice that they're making today. And I want to pray that you will honor them, that you will help them keep faith to this promise that they make today. That from today onwards, I know many of them are, are serving you right now, but I pray that increasingly they will continue to give more and more of themselves to you. They will live a life that will fully glorify you. And as others look into their life, they will be drawn to you as well. And so I pray that you will empower them in every way. And in the days to come, I know too that they will face temptation from everywhere. The world, their flesh, and importantly from the evil one. They will try to drag them down asking them to go back to the normal phase or business as usual, to be a complacent Christian. Lord, I pray if that they ever come and they fall, that you will give them that grace and the power to resist all these temptations, Lord, and to continue to prod on. And I pray too, Lord, a special protection over each and every one of them, that you will watch over them, that you will continue to soldier on with them and encourage them and pray that their life will indeed be faithful, as well as fruitful. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's all stand right now, and we're going to sing this song as a dedication to the Lord itself. And then as the songs are being sung again, I mean, if any one of you need prayers for any, any reason at all, just come right to the front, all right? And we have our pastors, our prayer ministers to just pray for you, all right? So this, let's sing this song together. Rock as we lead us. All that I am, 
regrets and all my acclaim, the joy and the pain, I'm making them yours. Lord, I offer my life to you, everything I've been through, use it for your glory, and Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you, as a pleasing sacrifice, Lord, I offer you my Things in the past, things in the past, things yet unseen, wishes and dreams that are yet to come true. All of my heart, all of my plans, my heart and my hands are lifted to you. Lord, I offer my life to you, everything I would do, use it for your glory. Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you. As a pleasing sacrifice, and Lord, I offer you my life. Offer my life to you. Everything I've been through, use it for your glory. Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you as a searing sacrifice. And Lord, I offer you my life. And so, Lord, this is our song of praise and our prayer to you. Help us. From now onwards, to always offer our life and as a living sacrifice for you. So that on a day when we finally arrive and see you face to face, we will hear these words of commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you.